Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Ben Downton, game designer and owner of Prometheus Game Labs, the publisher of MicroDojo. Prometheus Game Labs has recently launched the expansion to MicroDojo called Loyalty and Deceit on Kickstarter. Ben, welcome to the binge. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. That was a oh. great introduction. I love uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a little bit of practice. Eh? Uh, <laughs> you know, thanks for joining us. Uh, first of all, so you're joining us from Dubai, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's just gone midnight here as well. So uh, this, this is the most exciting thing I get to do of the day because it's now one minute past midnight. <laughs> what yeah, brings I've you been to Dubai. Dubai? This is like, this is a first for me, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I moved out here um, from the UK around seven seven years ago, I think. Time flies. Um, I moved out with work. Uh, I am still a security consultant, actually, okay. uh, along with being a board game uh, publisher and designer. But yeah, I moved out here seven years ago for work. And um, yeah, I just fell in love with it out here. And seven years have gone by and it's it's home now. No, it's, what what kind of security consultant? Like like military mean or like... Uh, uh, IT security. Or, so, okay, IT, cool. Um, Yes, yeah, so uh, I used to say I was uh, an ethical hacker, uh, em- emphasis on the ethical side, uh, <laughs> um, but now I do much more sort of strategy consulting and things like that. And um, yeah, it, uh, it it works quite well with board game design, actually, because you're always trying to uh, find loopholes or solve problems. And so yeah. I mean, that's perfect for board games. How did like, so becoming like the consultant did like obviously you have to get experience in hacking before you kind of go to that side. So is this something when you're younger, you kind of, you know, got into the systems and uh, kind of learned your way around hacking and then took that knowledge and then kind of started putting it to good. Is that kind of the, the gist of it? Uh, no, it's, it, that's the common path, you know, the sort of, we, we um, I, I don't know if you know this, but do you know about the, where the term sort of white hats and black hats come from? There's a um, movie, I think, called uh, Black There was a movie. Oh, it was a yeah. terrible movie. I, I, was, I was angry before it even started, but uh, I went to see it, I remember. But um, it was Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we have the sort of the, the the good guy hackers are called the White Hats and the, the bad guys are called the Black Hats. And, and that actually comes from the old Western movies where if you look at any of the Western movies, the good cowboys always have the White Hats on and the bad yeah, yeah. cowboys always have the Black Hats. So, um, yes, we... Sometimes people come in from the sort of the dark side, as you'd say, but um, I kind of went in cold. I actually kind of started life. I studied maths at university and um, I'd always been interested in computers, but uh, I kind of came in just, you know, with no experience and no knowledge, but just sort of uh, started learning, started studying and um, yeah, got a job, learned on the job, had great people to learn from and just, yeah, really, really enjoyed it. That was 13 years ago. Wow. Now, did you, whether prying too deep, because we're getting scared, but did you start <laughs> this uh, like in the UK and then you, they, they moved you to Dubai or did you literally apply for a job in Dubai and then kind of? Moved? No, I was, I was with a small company in the UK that uh, grew a lot over sort of the five or six years I was there, I think. Um, yeah. And then they were opening um, offices sort of elsewhere in the world. And uh, they, the option actually came up for sort of Dubai and Washington at the same time. They said that we're opening these two offices at the same time and kind of take your pick. And it was almost a coin flip, uh, you know, had uh, some benefits in Dubai, some benefits in Washington. And, and in the end, I thought, OK, let's let's give it a go. And I remember people asking me, they said, you know, so how long are you going for? I said, well, until I've had enough. And, <laughs> and they said, you know, well, what if you don't like it? I was like, then I'll come home. <laughs> like, it's that simple. Yeah. 
Wow. And uh, yeah, I just I just really loved it out here. And yeah, time's gone by. Cost of living, I think, is high, much higher in Dubai than maybe Washington, right? <laughs> it is. It's not a great place to be a board game designer, I'll say that. No. <laughs> um, but luckily, I'm still employed in, uh, in my current job as well. So oh, uh, I get to, do, get to do both at the moment. And then did you play board games growing up? Is it not like, were you a board gamer when you were younger at all? Or uh yeah i think uh, certainly my mum used to play a lot of uh, board games with us and i remember um playing i remember playing risk and monopoly with um some of my uncles uh as i got a little bit older sort of teenager we played mm. i don't remember playing many board games certainly we played uh you know video games we played dungeons and dragons and i remember playing magic the gathering mm. sort of not seriously i would say but you know we sort of you know kids teenagers playing magic the gathering with each other and then it I just kind of stopped. I don't remember when. I think it, I think probably university. I just stopped playing board games or Magic: The Gathering or anything like that at all. Um, and then it was actually uh, funny. We were talking about the the job in security. Um, we were putting together a like a fun little sort of deck of cards, almost like a top trumps of sort of uh, security vulnerabilities and things. It's a bit of a marketing exercise. Yeah. And one of the other guys there he said, oh, I found this cool generator online where you can kind of make your own magic cards. And so he did it in the magic card kind of format. Oh, that's cool. And I was like, oh, I remember magic cards. And then I got sort of hooked on that for uh, probably about three or four years playing that um, probably quite intensely, actually. <laughs> like that was my <laughs> my serious hobby. Uh, and then, of course, playing in board game stores and playing with people that play magic and other games kind of got me into other board games. Um, and then the first... I feel like everyone has almost exactly the same story, but we were at a at a wedding um, of my uh, my ex girlfriend. We were at a, a wedding at a friend of hers, and they were like, "Oh, we've been playing this cool board game called Catan. Yeah. Uh, it's really fun. We played all the time." And I was like, "Oh, we'll check it out." And then, you know, like everyone, it's <laughs> the gateway. <laughs> yeah, everyone's probably either played Catan or Magic or Dungeons and Dragons at some point in their life on their way to playing board games or becoming a designer <laughs> so it's yeah, amazing uh, for so the amount of Catan i played and i mean i've got Catan, i've got uh, several expansions but we never played anymore it kind of yeah. got overplayed where uh it i don't want to say fights is probably not the right word but it definitely <laughs> uh, resulted in uh non-enjoyment by uh by players uh too many times yeah and i don't know if it's because <laughs> of really you're at the mercy of whether people will trade with you because it's really a trading game more than anything. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and then if you just happen to get the bad rolls and you got the bad numbers, man, it really sucks sitting there for two hours, just watching everyone else have fun. Yeah. Um, it's so on one end, you know, I, I, I kind of loathe the game. I've even done some TikToks where we kind of poke fun at Catan, but uh, <laughs> I kind of loathe it. But on the other hand, I'm very great, grateful, you know, that what is yeah. done for the hobby market and, you know, like yourself, a number of people have played Catan that I've talked to. Mm. And that really was a catalyst that said, you know, this is, this goes beyond monopoly and risk. Yeah. There's actually this other kind of world of, of gaming that I didn't know about and didn't realize games could kind of go in this direction. And, you know, look at, look at the market now, right? So many combinations and iterations, yeah. permutations of different games and mechanics and so forth. And every generation is evolving right? Because yeah. it's building on the generation before. And I think it's so cool just to kind of sit back yeah. and, and, and watch that, right? So uh, that's kind it's of really cool. cool to think about it, like, because it's evolving at the same rate as like some technology. And you think, oh, board games are board games, you know, they're made of cardboard. And yeah. how can there be new board game technology? But if you look at like mechanics that are even 
uh, like you, you look at games that are like five years old, some of them, and they feel dated. You think, how how can this only be, you know, a 20, 2017, 2018 game? But it's because we've had such a rate of board, good board games that we've been able to kind of take those, refine them, like take the best bits of all those mechanics and yeah, um, yeah really refine them at quite a quite a pick pay, quick pace. It's, um, it's funny how fast board games are evolving. You, you know, you don't really notice it until you see a game that feels old and it's not very old. Yeah. And even I'll find like there'll be like either a theme or a mechanic that, you know, really gets popular quick. And then all of a sudden you'll see like four or five games in a row that all kind of come out with that same kind of either theme or like Pirates is a good example. You know, when yeah. Tiny Epic Pirates came out, there was like six games launched all at the same time. Um, yeah. Or, you know, if you see like a deck builder game, then also bang, there's like six, seven different deck builders in a row that you'll see on Kickstarter and so forth. So mm-hmm. it's cool to see that when people find something they like, they kind of look for more, right? So they create that demand and it allows others to kind of come up with these different ideas and these different, uh, these different things. So how did, how did you then transition from security into board game design? Yeah, it was, it was during the pandemic. So during, uh, 2020. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I know. I know. It's like the year we don't talk about, but it was actually a, a great year for me because I kind of discovered this <laughs> this board game design thing. Um, I think you know I needed a bit of a creative outlet. I think probably a lot of us did sort of stuck in lockdown. Um, yeah. And I think it's something to do with my time. And I actually started out wanting to make a video game, and I thought I'd make a little like a a twin stick shooter sort of video game, something like you know Enter the Gungeon or um, sort of the old school Robotron, something like that. Mm. I thought, okay, I'll play around with something like Unity or like maybe make this as a as an app and just just kind of learn something. Uh, and I think I spent about maybe an hour or two like on Unity, and I was like, wow, this is going to be really hard. <laughs> and then um, I mentioned it to my brother, and he said, oh, why don't you make this into a board game? Because he knows I, I play a lot of board games. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, oh, I'm not sure it would really work as a board game. And then I think like literally the next morning I woke up and I was like, oh, this could be a board game. <laughs> so he, he planted that seed for me. Um, and I spent probably a couple of months solid working on that game uh, before realizing it, it really wasn't very good. <laughs> and it wasn't really going to go in the right direction to to be good. Um, but by that time, uh, I'd been sort of kind of absorbing everything I could, you know, like reading articles, listening to board game design lab podcasts, um, just really getting into game design. I think in those two months, I decided I I didn't want to design this game. I wanted to design games or to Mm. be a game designer. Um, And so that's when I decided to sort of start working on some other game ideas. Um, And then... How did you figure out that it it wasn't going to be a good game? Was it input with other people playing with others or you just came to this realization yourself? Uh, I had a couple of playtests with other people, uh, one with a small group of friends. I, I did almost like a, a, a prototype concept where basically I designed sort of the first level. It was it was sort of a dungeon crawler, but it was meant to have a bit more of an arcade sort of action feel yeah. to it. Um, so I started with the first level and they're like, yeah, we liked it. It was good fun. Um, and then as I developed it more, I realized, um, I, I think actually it was the product side of things that made me realize it wasn't a good game. Like probably working on some of the things like the mechanics and stuff like that, it could definitely have been refined. Mm-hmm. But I realized, okay, I want this to be um, kind of a quick, easier game to play that's fun. But the level of variation that I have in it at the moment means you're going to need like a ton of content, a ton of tiles. Mm-hmm. So basically, if anyone wants a light, fun game, they're not going to pay $100 for it. And if, if they're willing to spend that on a game, they'll buy Gloomhaven. So I can either make yeah. a worse, more expensive Gloomhaven, <laughs> or I can make, you know, a, a, a light, fun game that's cheap, but has like no variability to it. So it was more the product side of things. Yeah. 
um, which I realized wasn't going to work. Um, That's actually kind of clever because it's it's kind of saying, okay, you know, what is it I'm trying to create? Who's the audience? What's the kind of price point they're going to pay? And is this current iteration and the way I'm going to have to make this fit that or not? Um, You know, that's pretty insightful. I, I don't know how many people actually go through that exercise, right? I think often you'll see people come up with an idea and then they're just like, we're going to keep running this. We're going to make this idea work versus yeah. saying, okay, it's not necessarily about the game. It's what I'm trying to achieve in terms of the gameplay. And this is not, not cutting it. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, yeah, there's probably a lot of games out there that are, are really great fun games to play, but not great products, you yeah. know, the great games that won't sell because they're amazing fun, but they're, you know, the price point just makes it impossible um, and things like that. So um, I didn't mean to set out thinking about the products when I started. I was just kind of like playing around to try and make a game. But like definitely the the product side of things has always been in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's how I evaluate games that I play as well. Like there's, there's definitely games I've played where I think like uh, really it's just the price. But there are certain things where I think like actually this would have been a better game if it was cheaper. You know, it's a, it's a fun game to play as an experience if someone gets it out of the table. But if I think, oh, I've paid $80 for this game, I don't feel it was worth it versus, wow, this game was only $30. Um, that definitely factors into sort of how I how I value a game. Um, so maybe that did come through when I was sort of doing the design phase as well. Yeah. Yeah, I had, a, I had an idea in mind for what it would be. That's tough when you have a game that, I have one in my collection, I'm not going to see what the game is, but... It was a Kickstarter back, and I was looking really forward to that game. I was so excited to get it. And I got it based on the theme and what I thought the game was going to be, based on the imagery and so forth. And when I got the game and played it, I played it once, and it's now sitting yeah. on the shelf, right? And it's like, oh, that was not a cheap game, yeah. right? That was actually... No. <laughs> uh, you know, it, had it been lower cost, I it, back to what you're saying, you know, had it been kind of priced around the type of game it is, I might have been less disappointed maybe yes, right, in, yeah. in the uh, in what I got, but it is what it is. I think that's kind of the roll of the dice with Kickstarters anyways, is that they're not all going to be winners. They're not going to yeah. all hit into the park. Um, and even a game that um, you have, you know, there's going to be some people love it. There's going to be some people hate it and that's okay. You know, yeah. not every game is for everybody. So, so how did yeah. that then transition to micro dojo? So where did micro dojo come from? Yeah. So after, sort of deciding this this first idea of the game wasn't going to work but I, I still knew I really wanted to kind of uh, create something and create a game and and sort of get into it yeah. um, I had a chat with um, we have a good gaming group in Dubai and um, one of the guys guys came and brought a prototype once and it was for a game called Lander uh, by Dan Alexander and he told us basically all about his process of how he developed this game how he was going to Kickstarter and he just had a lot of knowledge about what it took to kind of like he seemed very on top of things um mm-hmm. when i spoke to him you know a lot of things i hadn't even considered as just a game player and that, that was a few years before i planned to or before i ended up in game design and so after sort of abandoning this first project i reached out to him and said look i'd love to have a chat because this is something i'd like to get into and you know you, you um you seem to know what you were doing so it'd be good to just have a bit of a chat and the the one piece of advice he gave me that was um, really good he said you know it's it's a good idea to start with something small because it's it's very expensive to bring something to kickstarter yeah. and it it might fail um and as it happened i think my first kickstarter was not one bought by me but by a friend of mine um actually this friend that i mentioned at the start who we played magic the gathering with we've been friends since we were kids um i was visiting the uk um from dubai back for a, uh, a wedding at a friend of his 
And he met me at the train station. He said, oh, I've got something for you. And it was this little game called Province. It was $5 Mm. on Kickstarter. uh, And it came, uh, I don't know if it came in an envelope. I I think it did. I think it came in an envelope, but he punched it out and gave it to me in a little plastic bag. And it was this cute little worker placement game. Uh, It had a shared board with sort of three spaces and three meeples, and they all move clockwise. And you can choose not to move one. So you're sort of predicting what what your opponent's going to get. Yeah. And we played it on the train on on the way over to this wedding. And then when it was done, I put it back in the plastic bag and I put it in my jacket pocket and I actually even forgot it was there. And I that I, that game I still have. And so when Dan suggested making a small game, I thought, you know what? I really liked what Province did. Like it was just a cool little experience. It was cheap. And I thought if, if I do something that's sort of small and cheap that people can sort of almost uh, pick up as a no brainer, you know, what, what have you got to lose? Worst case, you know, there's uh, on Kickstarter, worst case, it's a scam or it never delivers or whatever. You've, you've lost five bucks. You know, it's not a yeah. big uh, investment. Um, and my plan was thinking, OK, this first game will be a way to sort of learn everything that I need to learn about how to run a Kickstarter and how to develop a game and how to bring it to life. Um, but also a good way to reach lots of people, because hopefully lots of people will want to buy this little cheap game instead of a, a big, you know, minis game. It won't take me five years to develop. I can do it in a much shorter time frame. Um, and then hopefully those people will become fans of future games that I make. So it was really a way of not just testing the water, but also sort of building my experience and building fans for future games. Yeah. Um, yeah. This so whole concept of fitting in an envelope, I thought was quite clever. I, I mean, I followed that first campaign and uh, I, I found it right near the end. So I didn't get a chance to get you on the podcast at that point. I'm yeah. like, oh gosh, it's too bad. That felt like a, an opportunity missed. So when I saw that you came out with this, um, you know, this expansion or this kind of second uh, edition, I was like, oh boy, I got to reach out to Ben. And uh, uh, thanks to Meeple on board, your licensing agent, also licensing agent I use as well. Yeah, it'd been great. Um, Reach out to Michael and say, can you please put me in contact with Ben? I want to chat with him about uh, Micro Dojo and this next uh, next generation. But this whole idea of putting it in an envelope, I thought was quite clever because it really is getting your costs significantly down, right? And I know with with smaller games that are that are lower uh, priced, you often run into the issue with backers saying, you know, I'm not going to back this because your shipping costs are almost as much as the game. I ran into this on a card yeah. game we, we did, and I'm like, okay, but I, you know, I can't charge. I'm not going to charge you more on the card game just so you feel better about the shipping. But this is the cost of the yeah. card game, and that's the cost yeah. of the shipping, right? So, the fact that you're able to get an envelope, and I think I'll share the screen for people that are that are watching um, this either on the playback or live. And uh, thanks for everybody's joining us. I'm watching Instagram here. I can see a number of people in the lobby. Thank you all for joining. Um, but when I went down to I'm scroll down to the shipping, I saw like a dollar, like you had like uh, it was like one pound to ship like yeah. even in the UK, which I thought was like, you don't see that on campaigns. Right. So was that something you kind of fell into or was that kind of always there from the beginning in terms of your, um, your plan? Yeah, no, that was 100% there from from the start. Uh, I I started basically with the the dimensions. So I, I used um, Royal Mail from the UK, their shipping categories to find what basically I could ship as a letter. And a C5 envelope is the largest um, size that can be shipped as a letter. So mm-hmm. I sized the punch board to fit inside that. And then everything kind of flowed from there. Um, I used the component sizes from province so actually the square tokens are the same size as the square tokens in province and the board is the same size i kind of used that as my 
sort of starting point. Yeah. Um, I can't tell you how many layouts I went through of the punch board to get everything to fit into that space. Um, but knowing that was going to be my limit was actually quite good from the design side of things because I could work out, okay, what can I fit into that punch board and, um, you know, where do I need to cut things? Like I, I had 16 buildings originally instead of the 12 and they just wouldn't fit on the punch board. So obviously the four worst ones got cut. Um, and actually that worked out quite well because I wouldn't say they were the worst ones, but they ended up getting cut and became the advanced movement abilities in the rule book. So basically for a, a tiny square, basically one, one ninth of one side of a US letter sized piece of paper became the advanced game. Um, and loads of people have told me they loved that. And so by cutting that from the punch board and moving it into the rule book, again, I could pack even more into the game. So yeah, I started with that envelope size as the, as the end goal basically, and then worked um not necessarily backwards from there but you know then yeah. i had to look into sort of print margins and how die lines cut and how much space you need between them and uh really i <laughs> it's interesting compared to probably designing larger games because i was designing things i was literally sizing stuff down to the millimeter i was weighing things down to the gram um even weighing the little plastic baggie that comes with the envelope just to check it wasn't <laughs> going to push it into a higher shipping category um that's awesome checking checking I mean, I even remember like doing calculations about like different quality paper of the rule books to work out what was the maximum quality rule book paper I could use and still be within the weight limit. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it was a lot of number crunching to to get it all in there. And it, it can uh, totally it can make it. or break a campaign, right? Just the weight of your game. Uh, yeah. I mean, you get you get bumped up into the next weight category, man. Uh, that has yeah. huge financial implications, right? So. Yeah, uh, that's good for you to kind of figure all that out in the in the initial design. So, for those who don't know Micro Dojo and this uh, this expansion, can you give us kind of the gist of how this game plays? Yeah, so it's um, it's kind of a worker placement game. Uh, you've basically got a shared board with a, a three by three um, grid, and you have four meeples on that board, and you will move one to an adjacent space and, and take the action there, which would be either either gaining some resources or using those resources to build a building, which will give you certain abilities um, or scoring points. Um, and you have some objectives that are laid out at the start of the game. And they'll be, uh, you'll be sort of in competition with each other for them. You know, the current objective might be have the most gold or have the most buildings, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, so you're kind of really sort of fighting with your opponent and a bit of a tug of war over over these objectives to score points. Um, and the, the real trick uh, for it, which actually came out of a problem I was trying to solve before I'd even designed the game, was you don't want to have a board where people are just going back and forth between the strongest spaces. You want to have a bit of an ebb and flow. Mm. Um, and so what happens is when you or an opponent have moved one of these four meeples, you put a daimyo marker on it to block it. So that one can't be moved again. So the way the meeples move is kind of a bit of a flow between which ones you've previously moved that get locked. You can kind of block certain spaces from your opponent. You can predict what they're trying to do. Um, so very much inspired by, it's kind of chess-like. Um, I was mm -hmm. quite inspired by Onitama. And um, I quite liked uh, Cerebria as well. M much bigger game, but a sort of tighter area control game. That tight feeling was something I really wanted to capture. Well, that's um, cool. So that's that's the base game. And then the expansion now has added uh, even more to that. So the expansion adds uh, sort of two clans that are almost like mirror opposites that are sort of fighting for control of this town. Uh, and that comes with a loyalty track for each one. So you can also progress on those loyalty tracks, which is sort of an, an alternate uh, advancement or an alternate win condition. 
There's another resource called Favor, um, which is used for certain things, as well as sort of acting as a wild resource. There's, there's new objectives, there's, there's new uh, meeple abilities, and uh, a modular board. So you can rebuild a board in a different fa uh, different fashion every time, rather than the old one, which was just printed. Mm -hmm. uh, you were kind of stuck with the same board each time. Now you can sort of build your own board and, and have it completely random each time. Um, and I think there's something like something stupid, like I worked out, there's like one trillion different setup possibilities or something. Oh, wow. and, um, and, you know, my, my thinking behind it was to, to pack in as much sort of variety and replayability as possible in a micro game where realistically the expectation is, sorry, the expectation is if you've bought a game for $5 or $10 and you play it once or twice, you probably feel like you've had some reasonable value yeah. out of it anyway. So trying to create something you could play, you know, I've played it over literally over a hundred times now just through play testing and yeah. um I'm, I'm still not bored of it <laughs> it's cool it's it's a one to two player so there's a solo mode as well and so yeah. how does a solo mode play like is it basically objectives you're trying to hit and is there like like is there an autonoma running against you or how does that work yeah yeah there's an autonoma player it's it's made up of eight cards it's really cool there's basically four um cards that represent the meeples and four cards that represent a direction mm -hmm. um you draw a meeple card you draw a direction and it's like a priority system. So say the card shows the samurai, then the sumo, then the ninja, then the geisha. You see if the samurai is available. If if it's not, if, if it's already blocked, then you, you go to the next one. Then you see what direction it's going to move. So it simulates basically the other player moving. And it does a lot of things that another player would do. It gains resources, it buys buildings, it scores points. Mm. Um, there's a few minor rule changes, which are I think they work quite well. They're quite simple, but they basically add a little bit of a a timer um so if if the automa can't score an objective it just gains a point instead which is not a lot um the game goes to seven points but some of the higher objectives are worth two or three but it's basically a way of stopping the sort of i would say the the stupidity of the automa being abused because you know it's kind of moving in a random direction in a, in a way and you have some predictability about where it's going to go i actually filmed a solo playthrough today where um i used that predictability to to make a different move than I would have done in the same way you would predict what your opponent would do. Um, but yes, for a solo mode, you know, an automa can, no matter how smart it is, it can only really approximate another player. So you sort yeah. of make up for it, not being able to capitalize on opportunities by giving it a little bit more sort of advantages and raw power. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the solo mode. It, it really works quite well. It's, it captures that sort of puzzly element and that tight feel, even when you're not playing against another player. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's super cool. I mean, I mean, even right now, you've still got twelve days to go. According to my math, it shows I think you uh, raised I think it's sixteen thousand in Canadian dollars. I don't know what that is in pounds, mm -hmm. but um, you, you're quickly approaching what you raised on your first campaign, right? Your first campaign, yeah. sixteen thousand pounds. You're getting close to that already, and you still got twelve days to go. So clearly, this is going to outshine your first campaign, which is awesome. So congratulations on that. Yeah. I certainly um, hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And and just the fact that, you know, when I, when I was looking through it and you've got the envelope, but now this time you're also offering as a deluxe version, you know, triple layer boards and things like, hey, do you want, you know, I know people ask for a box. I can give you a box if you want to buy a box yeah. and things like that. Was that based on demand or or is it just kind of trying to just, I don't know, expand kind of what you had? Like, it was is this kind of listening to your backers and making adjustments based on that? Or where did all these kind of yeah. extras come from? Yeah, a lot of people asked for the box in the first campaign, um, and I wasn't sure because I'd promised in the first campaign that I wanted to fulfill, <clears throat> like literally immediately after the campaign. Yeah. Uh, I actually had 500 copies printed 
before the campaign started because the game wow. was done um, and it, it's very very cheap to produce I actually had them printed locally in, in Dubai and it was nice to be able to sort of inspect them personally and everything yeah um, check they were up to scratch so I was like, look, I'll fulfill the first 500 immediately if the campaign gets bigger than that, because I had no idea really for the first campaign how big it, yeah. it might go. Um, I'll fulfill those kind of in a, in a second phase. Uh, but so producing anything else that I hadn't planned for really wasn't, it was going to slow down that fulfillment time and everything. And I didn't want to break that promise. So I said, look, uh, I was able to print the solo mode cards. Originally, they were just a digital download. Um, but yeah, the box was something I wasn't able to do. So this time around, I was like, yep, definitely doing the box. Um, it, it also meant it could go to retail because the envelope edition doesn't sit on a shelf nicely in a store yeah, somewhere. Um, so it was it was good to be able to basically offer that to backers and be able to now get it into retail. Now it's sort of, uh, now that the demand has been there for the first game, now it's a, it's a proper game. Um, but the envelope edition is still there for people that want the sort of cheaper option as well. So I like as long this as I can concept give choice, of, the, of the box set, I think it looks really cool. Or you have the two yeah. boxes, and as a bonus uh, to people that buy that, also get the sleeve that kind of holds both boxes together too, right? For the two games. Yeah, that was something um, I wanted to sort of give something to people that backed it on Kickstarter and supported it because I'm very grateful. But yeah. also, like I don't like it when I back a Kickstarter and I feel like I have to because there's exclusive content, or if if you buy it in the store later, it's like oh I missed out. So I didn't want to do any sort of exclusive content or anything like that. But yeah. something. Something, uh, ironically enough, something that will make it look really nice on the shelf <laughs> is the sleeve. So, uh, yeah, so that's in, that's included there as well. And funnily enough, although the envelope edition was kind of the hook of the first campaign that so many people loved, yeah. more than 80% of people have gone for the box edition this time around. Oh, yeah. So obviously they liked the game. They liked the idea enough to back the first one and they liked the game enough to back the second one, which is really good. Oh, that's awesome. So what, what's next? So obviously you've got Micro Dojo and now two iterations of that. Is it more Micro Dojo to come or are you working on other games now that you've kind of learned the Kickstarter system? Like what's kind of next for you guys? There'll definitely be more games. Um, I'd always sort of originally set out to say, I'll start with a small game and then I'll, I'll build fans to make bigger ones. Yeah. Um, but I think I'll make a few more small games for a while and uh, keep focusing on kind of tight two-player experiences i think that's where it's it's going to be heading um mm -hmm. i have a few things in the pipeline um some things that i'm hoping to develop some things uh from other designers that are contributing as well so there'll be some more stuff coming up once this campaign's out of the way and i've, I've breathed for a second <laughs> oh that's awesome well i'll definitely be watching this campaign see where it uh, finishes up for people that want to follow along uh, your journey and kind of see what's coming. How how best do they follow you? Uh, there's there's the Instagram profile, which is Prometheus.GameLabs. Uh, I'm mostly active on Facebook and I'm active more in a lot of other board game groups as well. Uh, yeah. There's a Micro Dojo group on Facebook currently. Um, there'll be other groups for other games. That's awesome. And uh, I think that's all the social media. I feel like I've missed one. <laughs> Oh, that's right. We'll tag it in the show notes uh, if, if there's yeah. one that we think about when we get off air. Ben, Kickstarter I want... campaign is the best place. Leave me a comment. I love I love hearing from people during the campaign. It's the best thing. It's it's so fun. Certainly to help with the algorithms too, right? So yeah, let's go check out their Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. Dojo, uh, <laughs> do a search on that. You'll find it no problem. We'll also put a link in the show notes yeah. as well to right to the Kickstarter campaign. Ben, I want to wish you all the best with this campaign. Uh, thanks very much. This coming year. Uh, I'm rooting for you. Uh, I'm so happy to see how well you've done. And being so new into the industry too is proof in the pudding that is never too late to jump into this hobby. If you're a game designer and this is something that is your passion, 
This gentleman here I'm talking to right now is proof in the pudding that you can jump in at any time. It's not too late. The, you know, the industry is not too crowded. There's a lot of other players out there, but that just means there's a lot more demand as well. So Ben, thanks again for coming on the podcast. You take care. Thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.